Hello, listeners. Welcome to Live at the Gargoyle, a podcast dedicated to interviews with Manitoba-based creators, especially those in the theatre arts. I'm Andrew Davidson, owner of the Gargoyle Theatre in downtown Winnipeg's West End, and today I am so happy to be talking with Brian Drader. Brian is a Manitoban through and through, born in Brandon and with a university degree from both the University of Manitoba, where he studied commerce, and the University of Winnipeg, where he studied theatre. His theatre career has spanned 40 years, give or take, with dozens of plays produced all over the world. In addition, Brian has also written multiple screenplays, television projects, and radio dramas, and he has aided in the development of hundreds of plays by others through his dramaturgy. Along the way, he's found time to act in more than 70 professional theatre productions across Canada, as well as numerous films. And as if that's not enough... Brian served as the Director of Playwriting at the National Theatre School of Canada in Montreal from 2004 to 2017, was the Associate Artistic Director for Prairie Theatre Exchange in Winnipeg, and is currently the Executive Director of the Manitoba Association of Playwrights. Welcome to the stage at the Gargoyle Theatre. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. That's, uh, uh, it, it overwhelms me a bit when you list all that off. Like, really, I have done all that. <laughs> you, well, not only have you done all of that, I had to work so hard to cut down your introduction <laughs> because the list of plays that you've worked on, uh, the fact that you also teach at the University of Winnipeg, the fact that you currently have a Cirque du Soleil show uh, called Michael Jackson One that you did work on still running, uh, the fact that you are currently writing a play. I mean, where do I draw the line on introduction? <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Well, why don't we go back to the start and uh, sure. go to your birth. So you are a Manitoban and you were yes. born... Yeah, yeah, born in the Brandon uh, General Hospital. Uh, okay. I was, uh, at the time, uh, our family lived uh, on a farm. Uh, my, my father started his career as a, a farmer, um, uh, Dunray, Manitoba, um, where he met my mum, who was the daughter of the... Uh, chief surgeon and superintendent of the Manitoba, Manitoba Tuberculosis uh, Sanatorium. And so the family roots are very much in that area. We have a cottage there, a family cottage uh, on Pelican Lake um, uh, near Nynat. Uh And then moved to McGregor, Manitoba when I think it was around uh, five. And, and my, my dad had gone through a, a complete career shift. He left the farm and... Uh, uh, all, it was uh, always uh, a practice, a practicing professional photographer, uh, um, weddings, portraits, etc. And he started working at what at the time was Winnipeg Photo. I think it's Sun Life now, uh, but Winnipeg Photo. So we moved into uh, the city. I learned so much in hindsight. At the time, I was just a kid, uh, but that was when uh, that was. Uh, uh, and just getting this straight, when we were in McGregor, he was still on the farm, actually. It was when, when I was uh, about 12 uh, that he moved into the city. And in hindsight, not at the time, I was just a kid, but in hindsight, just learned so much about uh, the the courage of uh, following your passion and following your bliss uh, that at that point with four kids, my mom and dad just uprooted, changed careers, moved to the city. Uh, 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 it turned out to be a terrific move for all of us. Uh, uh, but at the time, just when I look at it back in hindsight, I just so admire my parents' courage to just do that and follow their bliss and follow their passion. And uh, uh, I think I, 
I learned a lot about that uh, from that that I've applied to my own career of just uh, um, uh, going after what I really wanted to go after. Uh, yeah, and then grew up in Winnipeg, uh, my teenage years in Winnipeg, Westwood Collegiate, Westwood Warriors, and uh, from there went into commerce and realized very quickly that, whoa, that's not for me, and uh, uh, just dumped everything I was doing. At the time, I was uh, the food and beverage manager at Assiniboy Downs Racetrack, uh, the horse racetrack just outside the city, um, and taking uh, commerce at U of M, and just, it was so clear that this was not the path for me, and just dumped it all and started theater, and the rest. How did you, uh, as I listened to you describe your family, it's incredibly well-rounded. You've got agriculture, you've got the arts with the photography, mm. you've got science and medicine with the Tuberculosis Society. Yeah. How did you decide that commerce was what you thought you should uh, go yeah, into? Yeah, well, and in addition to that, my, my mom, although a stay-at-home mom, was also uh, very, very active with the, uh, she was, I think, the president of the Manitoba Home Economics uh, Association for a number of years, very active uh, uh, in that field, working from home. <laughs> the main reason, there's two, two reasons. Um, I started uh, working when I, I think it was 14 or 15, I lied about my age and uh, was a, started as a dishwasher at the Assiniboy Downs racetrack and just kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted until I was, uh, I believe when I started commerce, I was the supervisor of the, the vendors or something. I can't even remember, but, but you know, uh, very clearly getting promoted in a uh, business, uh, uh, business um, down a business road. So there was that that I thought, okay, well, I better get some training or a degree. But then also my older brother uh, had was in commerce and he had all the textbooks already. Sure. <laughs> and he went on to a very successful business career. Uh, he's retired now, but he went, he was when he retired, he was, I believe, the vice president of finance for IBM Canada, like an extremely uh, successful business career. But at that time, it was just almost like, like, uh, you know, getting caught in his wake, you know, like, okay, he's doing it, uh, I'm doing this job, might as well. It's um, a common story for somebody who has an older brother that ab- they uh, absolutely, admire. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but it was quite clear when I, when I started my uh, studies, well, deep into my studies, that like, wow, I was just so unhappy and just not, it was so disconnected from who, whom I wa- who I was. And, and I did, in high school, I did, I was quite a shy kid, but by grade 12, I started doing, you know, the drama and the musical and all that kind of stuff. And, well, what yeah. was offered at that time was it uh, was there a, a class that you took, or was it extracurricular activity? Yeah, no. The Westwood Collegiate at that time, I don't know where they are now, but at that time they had a really uh, a quite um, uh, established. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, every year they did the play and every year they did a musical and you know casting from the school. I, I can't recall that there was much theater training in the school, uh, but as an extracurricular uh, activity. Dr. Reason, uh, at the time, uh, uh, directed a big musical every year, and, and, and so it was very present in the school's uh, sort of ecology, uh, uh, the, the theater and, and uh, musicals. Again, I don't think there was much, if I recall, there wasn't a, uh, like a, a theater courses or anything. It was all extracurricular, but, but very instilled in the ethos of that school. And for you at the beginning, was it performing or were you directing? Were you doing performing? Some? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and indeed, I started my career. Uh, I, I I really took concentrated on the acting uh, stream in the in uh, University of Winnipeg and started my career as an actor uh, very much so. Uh, um, uh, indeed. Uh, 
did quite well as uh, I was starting to do quite well as an actor before I sort of woke up to I want to tell stories too and uh, um, the first my first ventures into uh, playwriting were with my friend Stephen McIntyre, Stephen, Stephen Eric McIntyre, who's a uh, successful, uh, quite successful film and television actor. In Very well known around. Yeah, Winnipeg, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a uh, dear friend of mine. And, and we started uh, a sort of co-writing for the French Festival, you know, the good old French Festival way back. In, that was early days. That and, must have been, And yeah. met um, and, and toured uh, the shows, uh, Winnipeg and Edmonton. I don't know if, we, if there was much more of a circuit at that time, but uh, both shows I co-wrote with Steve uh, we we uh, uh, did them in Winnipeg and Edmonton. They met with a lot of success, and uh, I just caught the bug and and wanted to uh, and so uh, basically maintained that dual career of actor and playwright uh, for for quite some time, as well as doing all sorts of other things. I worked with uh, Tom Jackson's uh, uh, film company, I, uh, uh, all sorts of side projects and. Uh, other um, other endeavors, but the two main streams were playwriting and acting, uh, and the acting I I I, I maintained. Uh, I guess into my forties. I mean, where I really just cut the cord with acting is when I moved to Montreal to take the position uh, to, as a director of the playwriting program at the National Theatre School in Montreal, and I knew something was going to have to give. Like the, right. the, it was a big. I knew I was walking into a big job, and I just make a made a conscious choice to yeah, I'm I'm done with acting and and. You know, I always say to myself, uh, like I, I, I just, um, uh, I'm narrated uh, um, uh, a dance to the end of the world, uh, Prairie Theatre Exchanges uh, audio play, which is coming out next week. I'm do, still doing a bit of, uh, which woke up like, yeah, I like this voice work, might do a bit of that. But I've always kind of said, I'll, I'll come back to acting when I'm old enough that I can just sit in a chair and say my lines. <laughs> <laughs> and and I didn't, I, honestly, uh, Andrew never missed it when I just made that choice that I'm done with that. Acting, right. never missed it, never looked back. Well, it sounds as though you haven't had any time to miss it with the, uh, the th- There's time, but, but if, if I'm to be honest with myself, uh, although, you know, hubris aside, I, I know... Um, I know I was getting good enough that I was being offered leads and doing work across the country. Doing uh, like I, I know that I was viewed as a good actor, um, but uh, if I'm to be dead honest with myself, I, I don't think I was ever comfortable, like ever truly in the center of my being, comfortable acting. It, it always I was. Uh, it was always sort of deep breath and. Okay, here we go, and and maybe that's all actors share that I don't know because uh, we don't know what we don't know. I don't live inside anybody else, but I know for myself that, that I I don't think I was ever truly deeply comfortable uh, mm. as an actor. Do you expect or suspect that this was because uh, the overarching mm-hmm. storytelling was something that was just more? Uh, attractive to you rather than uh, being yeah, a part no, of somebody I, I else's you story? And, and I think I think that the, the initial sparks yeah. w- with playwriting with storytelling uh, was just wanting to see myself on stage as as uh, as a as, as someone as, as someone who's queer as a gay man. Right. Uh, at that time, there was just so little representation, uh, and you know the first professional play I did was The Fruit Machine, which was uh, um, uh, really uh, sort of examining or investigating that time in Canadian history in the 50s and 60s where 
Um, our government, governments around the world were rooting out civil servants, uh, homosexuals, uh, gays and lesbians, uh, um, you know, under the premise that they were a security risk, but you know, they, they, it, was, uh, uh, it was obviously a deeply um, uh, ingrained homophobia. Um, and the, the fruit machine was this series of tests that they would do on them, visual tests and word association tests to root them out, right? And uh, I, I saw uh, sort of a news article or something, and this was back in the, uh, where would we be now? Late 80s, I guess. Um, saw a news article and, and I just my head just exploded with, yeah, this is a story. There, there's a story to be told here. Uh, and that's what kind of launched me into uh, uh, writing for myself, that particular right. story. And then, uh, and then my, my great mentor who's passed on now, uh, Iris Turcott, uh, I just blindly threw that at, she was working at Canadian Stage in Toronto <laughs> at the time, and just kind of uh, blindly threw it, at, you know, at Canadian Stage, just a general submission, and got a call from her one day who is this? Who who are you? Do you write this? Thing? I won't start. She swore like a trucker. I won't do that here. Uh, but yeah, and the, and she she was just instrumental in in galvanizing in me that yeah, you are a playwright. This is what you're gonna. You have no choice. I'm telling you this right. And and off I went. Well, this is uh, one of the works that you're most known for, and it's uh, clearly a. a a turning point in your life, um, being told you are a playwright. Yeah. Did you believe it at that moment? Oh like, no! That was, oh no! It no, took a, uh, no. It took, no! 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 The the or, or or okay. I mean, that's a great question, Andrew, because there is you know there's what we want to believe or, or kind of believe, and then there's what we will say out loud, right? right? And it took me a good couple of plays, being you know. Uh, 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 professional plays in, in established theaters before I would, you know, dare say, you know, in, a, in an interview or something that, yes, I am a playwright, you know, it was, yeah, I don't know, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in it and I'm doing it, but, eh, you know, it, ta- it takes, it just takes a while, like, especially in artist, any artistic pursuit takes a while before you really have the, the anchored confidence to declare, this is what I am. I am an actor. I am a playwright. I am a director, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What was the audience reaction to that play? To and the Fruit Machine? Yeah. Uh, well, it's an interesting, there's an interesting history to this because like at the time, I was really well received. Uh, Winnipeg, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, uh, and and very much it, it had hit sort of a zeitgeist moment in terms of um, uh, the 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 uh, the queer uh, uh, social movement and uh, particularly coming out of AIDS and and uh, uh, so so it was very very timely in its own way and then it sort of went away and what I'm fascinated with now is there's this whole resurgence around the fruit machine uh, the government apology uh, around all that the uh, I don't think it's been selected yet but there's a big competition for a big monument in Ottawa my understanding is our Human Rights Museum is going to do a whole thing about the fruit machine in that era and and it's just I I I love it uh but I do question like well why didn't all this happen way back then right you know but it just takes time and it's the way our culture and our society moves uh uh but I I'm tickled by it because of course this was something that that uh, this was topically uh, the turning point for me as a playwright uh, way 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 back some 30 or more years ago yeah I mean, I, I was in university in the late 80s, and I, 
I remember that time. Like it really was, uh, it's very good for me now to sit and reflect how far we have come yeah. in uh, gay and queer rights yeah. because there's been tremendous movement. Absolutely. A lot of works to do, so particularly on the trans front uh, now. There's still tons of work to do, but but my gosh, I mean, I, like I, I can't, uh, it was like a, it's almost like when when I think about it through that lens, it's almost like I'm living in a different world than right. than I did uh, growing growing up in my teens, my twenties, uh, my even my thirties. You know, was it a difficult uh, time to live as a gay man, even uh, in the theater world at that point? Not in the theater world. No, no. no. Uh, the the I, I was never. I was always out uh, in in a, in the theater world. Yeah. Uh, but certainly culturally, for sure. I mean, yeah. you, you're you're living, you, and and particularly in, uh, you know, uh, partic- the more smaller the community, the more rural you get, the more difficult it, it, it still is. Still uh, is. But that, back at, at that time, uh, but, you know, because I was so out, uh, particularly around the fruit machine, like, you know, I mean, I lost a boyfriend over it, you know, because they couldn't take it. They couldn't take that, that this is, you know, that be, someone being this out, and it was, you know, difficult. Now, now, maybe this is a blessing, maybe it's not, who knows. We don't know what we don't know, uh, but that was a time before social media, and so right. access to a person uh, was limited, right? And uh, I can't imagine uh, if social media was what it was, what it is today, the kind of uh, just homophobia and kickback. Now, you know, the flip side, the complication with these things. If social media was alive, maybe it would have accelerated the whole movement and you know awareness. And you, you just one doesn't know. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, it, it was for sure. I I I think it was more difficult. Uh, certainly, I know it was more difficult for um, just people because of their their uh, you know their being, their authentic being. Uh, uh, were were uh, presented in a more effeminate way, or like, of course, it was more difficult for those people, uh, 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 for those individuals. And uh, uh, but yeah, it was not it was not an easy time, but it was also kind of a glorious time too, because it, you know that it was a time, particularly um, as galvanized uh, by AIDS, it was a time where just the whole culture was just waking up, like it was a real turning point, uh, both in terms of homophobia, but also in terms of social justice movement. Uh, Right. Uh, which go hand in hand, you know, like the, um, uh, essentially. So you had this success with the fruit machine. How did that affect what you wrote next and how you moved forward yeah. with your career? Uh, the, the, the big effect was just opportunity, uh, yeah. that, that suddenly there was support uh, and uh, there was... Um, uh, uh, there was interest, uh, and uh, of course, opportunity is a great motivator. Uh, uh, it's a great facilitator. Um, uh, the and so I, I went searching for what I want to write next. And and again, at that time, I was so incredibly blessed uh, to have uh, Iris Turcott, who is just a you know the the was again she's passed on now, but but one of our greatest Canadian champions of uh, Canadian playwrights. Uh, and she took me under her wing and um, was uh, sort of demanding the next play. Right. <laughs> because that's the way Iris worked. And, uh, and, and you know, that was a time in, in my life, I think most artists 
recognize this. There, there is that time in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s where you, there's no possible way you can uh, capture all the things you want to write about, all the ideas. And, and so Iris, Iris was a great guide in terms of narrowing down that yeah, this is the project, this is the project you should work on next. And uh, she was a tremendous guide. And uh, yeah. yeah. I've got to assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, this guidance must have affected you in a different way because uh, in an additional way mm. in that now a good part of your life is guiding other people and yes. helping other people yes. with their place so was she uh, uh an example of how to uh, oh my to god help oh my god yeah now yeah. now, uh, now uh, just just to be uh, clear you know my, I, like my dramaturgical practice a dramaturgical practice by its very nature just like any craft or or, or art is uh um is shaped by who you are and your own bedside. Like I, I'm nothing like Iris Turcott as a dramaturg, because right. Iris was uh, just a, uh, a force of nature. Uh, and um, uh, again, every time I think of her, I just want to swear like a trucker because that's what she did. So, so my practice is my is is different. But the fundamentals, everything I learned from Iris, everything I learned from Iris. Uh, uh, not only that, but just just having the experience of being cared for, like she cared for me, of course instills, in, instills uh, in one, um, just how I, how, what I wanna be for other playwrights, uh, mm. essentially. Right. Well, you, you have so many plays, I'm gonna have to jump over a bunch and jump around, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. maybe I'd like to hear a little bit about the Norballs next, <laughs> yeah, because sure. that seemed to be it was Another a big water, one. watermark. Yeah, that that was a big one in terms of like that 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 had a I, I hubris aside, I'm not sure that I'm just thinking about it. And I'm not sure that I've ever seen this before. But it had a dual opening night in Winnipeg at Prairie Theatre Exchange and in Toronto at the Canadian, Canadian Stage St. Lawrence Centre for the the Arts. They negotiated uh, that they were both going to open on the same night. Uh, wow, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, it was huge. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Um, but that play. Uh, I mean, the impetus for that play was I, I just wanted to write a, a love letter to my family. Anybody who knows my family can recognize who's who in that play. Uh, and it's sort of a warped, uh, stretched comic version of my family. But, uh, but that's where it started is just, uh, uh, just I wanted to write a love letter to uh, my family, my parents and my siblings. And, uh, um, and you know, I, I remember even the first conceptions of that is how can I, you know, um, take who they are and kind of twist and stretch and, uh, and find the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of comic extension of who they are. Uh, uh, but that, yeah, that's just me. That's my family. Uh, and how I you... remember I was never so nervous as when I gave that play to my mom and dad. Oh, I can me. imagine. How, how uh, did your family accept it? my mom was never it? so nervous. Like when I, like, cause I told her, I said, you know, this is kind of like about us. And, and so she took it, or my mom and dad were doing some road trip at the time and she took it on the road with her. Um, and she said within two pages, she was just laughing her head off and reading it to her dad in the car <laughs> you know but I was I was petrified when I gave it to, to her just because it was so personal it was such a person even though it doesn't I, I'm the first to say that if you look at that play it might it might not uh, read as that as some as my personal love letter to my family it, uh, because it's so um, stylistically it's uh, it, it's so sort of rem heightened and removed and the characters are all pushed to extremes and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I know as a writer myself, I think it's likely that we're a little more sensitive to the inspirations behind the writing than For what sure. other people will see. Yeah, well, it's yeah. one of the things that I share with, with young students now, with yeah. those students at, at you know, like teaching playwriting at University of Winnipeg, is uh, when they get, you know, when they're ready to tackle that personal story, uh, you know, the, the, the average audience person that doesn't know them isn't sitting there going, oh, that's the playwright. They just aren't. They right. just aren't. Their, their, their relationship to, to the story, to the play, to the novel, to uh, whatever it is, is, is removed from that because they're there for themselves. Right. They're there for themselves, right? Yes. That their, their relationship to the story is, is saying more about them uh, because it's, uh, any art is a subjective experience, right? Uh, but as as a storyteller, as you're you're saying yourself as a storyteller, that's not necessarily how we hold it or what we think, right? Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, it, it as as you have mentioned, it it can be terrifying. So, as somebody who's guiding others, how do you help them to to excavate and access the personal in their work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what you what what you're you know the corner we're turning here is you know what what is what is a dramaturgical practice right, right. you know uh, and, and uh, like a massive question um uh, you know just to kind of whittle it start to whittle it down to size our our dramaturgical practice here in canada is quite different than the global practice uh, in europe the dramaturg works you know these are somewhat generalizations but generally works with the director on interpreting an already existing text right our our, our what we think of as dramaturgy here in Canada um, is pretty well centered around process dramaturgy, the, the dramaturg working directly with the playwright to develop new work. And, and indeed, we don't even know, we haven't even settled on how to pronounce it yet. <laughs> like it's either <laughs> dramaturg or dramaturge, spelt with a G-E, soft G. They're both right. There's yes. regional preferences. You know, I, I'm a, a, a hard-line dramaturg person because... Um, because I'm in Montreal uh, at the National Theatre School where there's a full English section and a full French section. Uh, in, in, en français, uh, a dramaturg, a church often refers to the playwright, so we stick with dramaturg, uh, you know, and, okay. and also to our, our only sort of um, guiding organization in North America is the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. So I stick with that, but dra the dramaturge regionally is used all over the country. But but the, the point being is in Canada, you work with the playwright. The, the, for me, and this is now entrenched in uh, MAPS, uh, strategic plan and values, one size fits one. And what I mean by that is every playwright, every storyteller is going to be different, an individual, and every project they tell, uh, they, they're undertaking is going to be an individual, is going to be a different process for them. And, and so it's one of the reasons dramaturgy, what is dramaturgy, it's hard to talk about because it depends who it's, you know, it depends what that playwright needs. And uh, uh, some playwrights, going back just straight to your question, some playwrights need no coaching or 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 help whatsoever uh, um, accessing really personal, vulnerable, authentic, uh, um, um, uh, authentic connection to their stories. Others do, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and how how do you help them there um, by establishing you know a really trusting uh, environment, a safe environment, or safer environment? Um, but one thing, I was just talking about this the other day, and I think I mentioned this in some dramaturgical notes on the, with the, that are accompanying the Prairie Theatre Exchange audio play. 
<coughs> excuse me, because I worked with Thomas Morgan Jones on that dramaturgically. You, I, the place you start from is that, and the, the probably the biggest gift you can provide for for a storyteller, particularly in early stages of development, is is you you simply believe in that world and believe in those people as much as the playwright does you know and that's where you start and all conversations can can all inquiries questions offers they can all be unpacked from that point is that, that whatever shaky first draft material you give me right. I will get in there and on your terms believe in this world believe in these people uh, believe in the story you're telling uh, as much as you do and and that that alone uh, sort of gets the dramaturgical process out of the gates because often you're the first person that playwright is showing that material to. And so so to just uh, validate that, yep, this is real. I'm in there with you. And from there, it can you can start unpacking wherever it needs to go, right? Uh, right. Um, if, if there is the possibility, and there usually is in early material, if there's a possibility for a deeper truths and deeper emotional notes, you're on the journey with them at that point. Right. How do you get there? Well, it depends on who the individual is. It depends on uh, the, the style and form of the play. Uh, it depends on, you know, it might mean let's go to a museum together, right? Uh, or it might mean let's talk about your family. Or right. it might mean, uh, um, you know, let's, let's do a collage. <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> like I'm making this up, but, but I'm not. You know, it's one size fits one. Right. Exactly. And um, I mean, you'd have to be acutely sensitive to the needs of the person, um, especially in an instance I can imagine where, you know, ideally you come onto a project and you fully believe the world and you fully believe the characters and it's a gentle push. Yeah. But if you uh, are looking at it going, oh, I think that maybe there's a fair amount of change that needs to come. That sure. must be very difficult to shepherd. Uh, it is difficult to shepherd, but it's also like you bring up a really interesting aspect of dramaturgy, Andrew. Like one of the earliest things in, uh, that I learned about the practice of dramaturgy, particularly coming from a writing background myself, is this is not my story. Yeah. This is not my story. And, and uh, getting that out of the way, ferociously out of the way, so that you can help, even if you don't, particularly agree with where the playwright is going, help them tell the story they want to tell, right? right? And of course, of course, in the process of that, if you're seeing potential that they're not seeing, of course you open that potential up to them. But at the end of the day, uh, end of the day they have to make the choices, right? They, they have to decide what, is, what the story they, is, is that they want to tell, how they want to tell it, style and form. Um, uh, what One thing I do um, often find myself supporting and helping a playwright find is to, to not to quit imposing a style and form that they think it, this wants to be and, and working through the story itself so that the story can emerge and find its own style and form. Um, and, and that's part of just untying the knots that, that we ourselves as storytellers bring to it. We bring such a conception of what we want it to be and, and, uh, and it, it's a real sometimes a real tough corner to turn to just really trust, to really trust our own instincts and to trust uh, that, that you know, if we, if we stay true to the pursuit of the story we want to tell and the authenticity of that story, the style and form will actually emerge as opposed to having some vision of style and form and then trying to plug together a story that will serve that, right? Right. Uh, which which in, often is 
um, sort of cart in front of horse. But I return to it, one size fits one. There's writers who write like that successfully, like really successfully. And so just being, I mean, that's part of working with a playwright dramaturgically before we even get to the story, a good part of the work is is starting to get to know them and starting to get to know how do they work and know, knowing their other projects, knowing other uh, uh, material and, and just getting a sense of who they are as a storyteller so that one can serve that as opposed to inadvertently trying to change that. Well, this actually opens... Um an important question, which is, how do you decide when to work with somebody? Because there's, right. your time is valuable and limited, as it is for all of us. Yeah, you have your that. own projects you want to yeah, work on. Yeah. How do you decide, okay, a certain amount of my time is going to go to this other person's for sure, project? For sure. Um, various positions I've had have, have gleefully, happily dictated that. For, for, uh, for like when I was in Montreal, of course, I'm working. It's a massive three-year full-time program. I'm working with the, the students that I've got. And then, you know, I was doing some outside work, uh, uh, mostly with graduating students, like just with those continued relationships. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, during that time in my dramaturgical practice, Iris would occasionally go, this playwright, you just got to work with them. It's, you're, it's a match made in heaven. And you know, like the almost like a dating service, that part of it. And MAP, it's 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 actually maybe ironically an an easier decision to make because of the position. Uh, MAP uh, on behalf when I'm acting on behalf of MAP, uh, we will support and you know anybody we can. Everybody right. will find a way to support them. Uh, um, but in terms of my 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 dramaturgical engagement, that's by by sort of the um, uh, harnessed uh, by, you know, it's still a small company, budget, et cetera. The, 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 the projects I'm attached to dramaturgically are all the projects that are going on to production. They're long-term dramaturgical engagements, right? Because a, a MAP, for starters, MAP can't afford to, to, uh, to, to uh, be hiring dramaturgs for those engagements. That's part of my job. Just at, like, just like a, at an artistic director's, part of their job is to be directing some gigs in their season. Uh, part of my job is to take on those long-term dramaturgical engagements with, <clears throat> excuse me, with projects that uh, theaters have committed to or um, uh, um, independent companies that are going for a long journey. So those are the ones that I'll take on. Fortunately, every single one of them I love. <laughs> like yep. every single one of them I love. There's no, that ain't no sacrifice on my part by any means. And uh, in addition, so far anyway, I've been there for five years and everybody seems happy with how I'm serving those projects, right? So, so it's, it's kind of dictated uh, within the company. Uh, um, I read everything, everything that comes into MAP because, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm just going to grab my water. Part Absolutely. of my job is to find the right dramaturg for those people, like the, for all the projects I can't work on directly. Um, the, the uh, you know, just if it's a draft turnover, someone wants some dramaturgical support, I read the draft to, uh, and talk with the playwright, of course, um, to, to see if we can find the right fit. Uh, and over the course of the last five years, I call them my team of ad hoc dramaturgs. I've built up a team in the city of, of oh, 25 people that I can call on uh, regularly to, to uh, hook up with a playwright who's got a draft ready to, to um, take into a dramaturgical process. Right. So I'm sure that 
many of our listeners are local and they will know that MAP is the Manitoba Association of Playwrights. Yeah. Um, and it's where you currently work. It's where I know you from. Yeah. Um, but just for those listeners who are listening in other countries, because we have those as well, sure. um, what exactly is MAP? What, yeah, what sure. is the organization itself? Yeah, a great question. Uh, it's one size fits one, which again <laughs> makes it hard to uh, maybe, uh, um, uh, you know, capture in a soundbite. <clears throat> but it is, um, it, it was, it started back in, uh, it's now 42 years uh, uh, in existence. And it started uh, way back in the day, back in the 70s, late 70s, as uh, as uh, an organization to address the lack of um, uh, uh, new plays done, uh, written by Manitoba playwrights that were done in, in the province, and particularly in the city. There, there was just a dearth. There was, there was very few. And so it, yeah, a group of playwrights got together. We need to, to you know, start building community, start building support, start, start building presence, and, uh, and took off from there. And then uh, Rory Reynolds, uh, you know, Rory Reynolds basically made MAP. Like he, he uh, uh, when he took the helm, he was at the helm for 34 years, uh, um, really made a success of it uh, in terms of a well-established um, association of playwrights. It, it is a membership-based, but we serve you know, uh, everybody, you know, uh, uh, to our, to our, our detriment and, and organizational capacity at times, but we do right. our best uh, to serve uh, um, uh, playwrights who want support. Uh, and, and so, so it, it's, a, it's an, a, an organization that provided, provides dramaturgical service, workshop service. Uh, we have a high school playwriting program uh, uh, that's up and running uh, again. It's been around for about 22 years. Um, uh, we have uh, 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 really recentering the organization as dramaturgically driven, um, but we also do uh, play development, uh, uh, play, sorry, playwright development uh, in terms of seminar, seminars, workshops, uh, etc. Uh, we have a, a, a library, the Jarvis Library and Resource Center, which I think might have the largest collection of Manitoba plays in in. Uh, uh, in the in the province, um, uh, we have a studio that the community uses. A map uses, obviously, but the community uses as well. Uh, well, that uh, I think we did a reading for the first play at the Gargoyle. Uh, Stephen Ratzlav's uh, Sonia and Richard. They sat in for two days there as they worked through the script. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, we also have uh, we have a suite of uh, like uh, awards. The, the next one coming up, which I'm actually really excited about, is uh, Harry Rintoul uh, uh, Best New Manitoba Play at the Fringe Award um, uh, that <clears throat> that we facilitate and uh, support. And, you know, fingers crossed that the Fringe is going to be happening this summer. It's on track. And, it yeah. seems to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that'll be back in play. Um, and then, and then within all of that, you know, my my office mate uh, and program coordinator, Daniel, um, Daniel Tawilef, yeah, friend you, of the show, previous you interviewee, betcha, and and my saving grace, mother Manitoba. Just so anybody's listening, Manitoba Association of Playwrights would come grinding to a halt and crumble and <laughs> just fall over the edge of the cliff without his uh, support at the office. Um, but but we've been having, <clears throat> you know, I, I share sort of. <clears throat> maybe telling tales out of school. Um, but we have been having so many interesting chats this year about 
branding services like you know oh this service and we'll call it this and you know uh, and and they, 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 without getting into details um, and they, they they're, they're, they're 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 necessary just for budgeting like you know this budget line that budget line so you can allocate resources right uh, they're necessary from a granting perspective so you can explain to that jury uh, sitting at the, the table what it is you do um, and they're they're they you know coming up with a new branded service uh, does initiate uh, some really targeted thought around, yeah, th this, this, this would be an interesting project and that would be an interesting, uh, you know, playwright development uh, bit, thing like that. But how quickly the brand itself breaks down in an environment where the, the central core philosophy is one size fits one, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that contradiction to me is just fascinating running the organization, all to say that all those things I just rattled off, at the end of the day, it's who's the playwright, what's the project, what do they need, and we'll, we'll do our best, you know. Uh, uh, and so it is, in that sense, really um, uh, tremendously actually democratic, is I will meet you as an individual, I will, it will, MAP will serve to the best of our ability as an individual and the project. So, yeah, I can rattle off all the programs in the world, and sure. that's what it ends up. Uh, You're helping Manitoba playwrights. Yeah, we're helping yeah. Manitoba playwrights. And yeah. before the pandemic uh, hit, I came out often for the evening, I don't know what you even call them, workshops? Or? Those were those were a sort of an evolving uh uh, a program called the Open Door, which was, you know, even in the time I've been there in five years, <laughs> it was just, uh, uh, it has evolved countless times in terms of what it is. But the the period you're referring to, which was, I guess, about three years ago, yeah, they, they were sort of themed evenings where playwrights got together and, and uh, I brought in some panelists and we would just, just chat about whatever the, the, the designated... Um, um, uh, point of conversation, unpacking point of conversation was. And, I've know. got to say that uh, personally, I'm hoping that as we come out of this pandemic, that such events return because I, I love them. And yeah, I'm I, with you. I, yeah. I miss being in a room with other creative people talking absolutely. about whatever they're working uh, on. Absolutely. And it's something that we're really thinking about as we come out of this pandemic is that sense of community and, yeah. uh, and what can, can uh, facilitate and, uh, uh, deepen and strengthen that sense of community. <clears throat> the reason those activities, we, we kept them going, you know, pivoted to digital, pivoted to Zoom, uh, kept them going for a little while, but but they fell off pretty quickly simply because, like, it was so clear the last thing the anybody wanted to do was, you know, a, a yet another Zoom meeting at 7 at night, and like, it was just like, yeah. Uh, they, 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 it was almost like, uh, it, it was almost like we let everybody, you know, uh, out of their misery and just said, yeah, we, we won't call us, you won't call yet another little um, playwright meeting on Zoom, at, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, after your eight hours that you've already spent <laughs> in front of a, a computer. Well, I'm looking forward to asking you about some of your other work. Before yeah. I move on, is there anything more you'd like to say about MAP for our listeners or have mm -hmm. we pretty much got a, a feel for what <clears throat> you're doing. Yeah, the, 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 um, uh, the, the you know, we're, we're supporting at any given time dozens and dozens and dozens of projects at various stages in development. Yeah. Um, some of the most exciting I can't talk about because they're parts of seasons that haven't been of course yet or a production that hasn't been secured. Uh, and, and, and some of the early development work, you know, I, I, I hold, <clears throat> I think it's really precious, uh, 
that a playwright be in control of when they want to talk about, yeah, I'm working on a new play and this is what it is. And, um, and indeed, that's something I try to instill, particularly in younger writers, like quit talking about it so much because you're, you know, you're, you're not giving yourself, your imagination, uh, a chance to really drop deep and, and catch fire. Uh, uh, and often, I remember as a young writer, I, I would... Uh, talk about my stories to death and then go home and not write because I'm, I'm done, done work, right? So there's a lot we can't talk about in individual projects, but, you know, here we come, like we're coming back and there's two projects, um, MAP-supported projects that are just around the corner. You know, I don't know when this airs, so uh, it might be last week or next week, but it's March 14th, uh, Prairie Theatre Exchange, uh, A Dance to the End of the World by Thomas Morgan Jones uh, that uh, MAP-supported, and then on April 6th, uh, the uh, uh, End of the West Theatre, uh, uh, presented by Theatre Projects Manitoba, their musical, um, uh, End of the Line, uh, they're going into a two-week workshop and then they pre present a public uh, a share of that yeah. work, of work in progress right across the street at the West End West Cultural, Cultural Centre. Yeah. April 6th, I'm going to get my ticket to go uh, see the stage and so reading. Just, I just want to, I want to plug some of the yeah. work MAP is supporting and and, uh, and that's a small example of just right. lots of stuff we've got on the go, but it's in the sweet spot where I can talk about it because yeah. it's announced, it's out there. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit about your work in film, sure. because uh, how did you, how did that end up coming to, to, to be in? What, what do you like about it or not like yeah, about it? It, uh, uh, it? It was like sort of a, uh, I would say about a 10 to 15 year adventure, a little slice of the career. Um, and just to be very clear, other than a short film, none of it made it to camera. Everything supported by Telefilm Canada, everything right. like it's welcome to the Canadian film industry. And sure. they were all exciting projects. Uh, um, uh, uh, I, I got, where did I, I can't even remember what the kind of turning point there. I think it was just me being a writer and wanting to explore different mediums and being in a point at my, in my playwriting career, uh, again, that, that uh, I'd had enough success that it, it was uh, a little bit easier for me to, to find opportunities, open doors, get support. Um, uh, the, there were like three feature films, one, one two that were uh, attached to producers here in Winnipeg, one that was... Uh, four, I guess, two that were attached here and produced in Winnipeg, two in Toronto. Uh, great rides, learned a lot, uh, fully supported from Telefilm, and they just... They didn't come to fruition didn't as... Didn't come to fruition, yeah. Most projects do not, unfortunately. Uh, particularly in, you know, in, in, in... Well, I guess we're not particularly in film and play, good heavens, and in theater, too. Uh, um, <clears throat> but uh, but they were great experiences. I, I, do, I do share that by the time the fourth was, you know, had... had sort of not made it to camera. I, I was kind of done with the industry. And it was, it's a very, very, very different industry for a writer. Uh, I think, as you well know, it's uh, um, it, certainly the, the it, it really kind of is uh, a film is a director's medium. Uh, um, if you're, if you're that auteur director writer, maybe, but, but as a, and, and that's changed a lot too, uh, particularly in television, like t television as becoming a writer's medium actually, uh, with, with a, just, a, uh, uh, just a whole shift in, in how, um, television is created and the success, uh, early success of some of those 
writer-driven projects like Six Feet Under and stuff like that Absolutely. that just opened up a, a real change in the industry. But but all said and done, it was just I I just I didn't enjoy it as much as theater, like anywhere near as much. It it it, it pays well, like it paid well. Boy oh boy, did it pay the bills for a few years. You know, uh, uh, well I was struggling on that next Which play. Which is not to be scoffed at. Not to be scoffed at. If, uh, if, uh, if those projects can help fund a play, yeah, good for yeah, them. Yeah. Good for but you. But there was there was a couple that I really really wish had made it to camera that right. I was really proud of and I think would have made really good films but that's you know that's the industry and and fortunately I think for like I feel blessed that that my career has enough um uh, um, breadth to it that that yeah yeah it didn't work out no big deal <laughs> you well, know. the there was a short film that did yeah, that was done Iris with and uh, Tina Tim and Arlie. Do you know Arlie Ashcroft at Creative Manitoba? I don't. Uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, that was a uh, just a, a wild ride. Learned so much of it, and the three of us went after a, um, uh, it was a national. Screen Institute uh, initiative at the time, and <clears throat> wrote a script, uh, um, uh, submitted it, got a uh, got a budget, got a you know, and we we did it up uh, right and did it up good, and, and uh, it just a, oh my gosh, did we learn a lot and had tons of fun too, tons of fun. Right. Yeah. Well, I would absolutely be remiss if I did not ask you about your work on Cirque du Soleil's Michael Jackson One. MJ One. MJ One. <laughs> Mandalay so, Bay, Las Vegas. <laughs> so it opened in June of 2013? Or uh, in the past? Thereabouts, yes. way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still running. And yeah. it's still running, yeah. which is amazing. And yeah. uh, just tell me about the project. How did you come onto it? What was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That <clears throat> that was um, I was at the National Theatre School of Canada at the time. I was a pro- program, the director of the playwriting program. Uh, getting to know the community in Montreal quite, quite well. Uh, Welby Altidore uh, was a creative director at uh, Cirque du Soleil at the time. Uh, they were working on a project. This project, the the one we're talking about. Um, for about a year and a half, and it sort of tanked. They, 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 I wasn't on the project at this point. Uh, it had sort of tanked. It was uh, Guy Laliberté, who was, the, <laughs> was, you know, the, was Cirque du Soleil, Soleil at the time. I think he sold most of his shares in it now. I don't know any about that. But, but he, you know, he basically, they, they'd been working on it for a year, year and a half, and, and he basically just said, no, this is the wrong direction. And so, and so they had to scrap it and completely reinvent it. They brought in um, uh, uh, a director uh, from from uh, the states, a quite famous uh, worked w- worked a lot with uh, some of the you know big divas, Madonna and Celine Dion, what have you. And they needed a <clears throat> what was called a dramaturg uh, at the time, or a, a, a dramaturg, dramaturg at the time, to work with the director to conceive the show. Um, and uh, uh, Welby just out of the blue just asked me because he knew me by reputation. We, we knew each other. I, I knew his partner at the time better than him, but uh, knew him and just asked me out of the blue, like, yeah, do you want to try this? Uh, and we start now. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it scared the beekeepers out of me because I like it. Was, it's like this a massive, massive undertaking, massive machine. Uh, I didn't really know anything about it. But of course, of course, at the end of the day, I, I just, of course, I got to do this. Of well, course, I do. as somebody, my first reaction as you talk about this is if I were a writer who was offered such a job, I would go, 
okay, the resources of Cirque du Soleil <clears throat> behind it, I can literally write anything yeah, I imagine, and yeah. there's the possibility that it can come to life. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and so, of course, I said yes, and, and I remember that I, that I was just about to come break for holidays, come home for the winter holidays, uh, um, and uh, I had to deliver sort of a first draft of a story conception uh, uh, based on just a few little things they were working on two weeks later. And I just, I was staying at my brother's place and just camped out in his kitchen, set up my office and just worked all through the holidays, uh, uh, getting that out. And then, and then, uh, you know, and, the, and then, uh, uh, the director, um, uh, <coughs> Jamie King, uh, really loved what I had to, as did, uh, as did Welby, the creative director. And so we had our feet in it and off we go. And, Every step of the way was just a massive learning curve for me. Um, with, with just, I couldn't have asked for uh, better um, guides in that than Welby and Jamie, and uh, um, uh, who are used to working with these big canvases and these big budgets and these big anything can happen. Uh, but at the center of it, you're still trying. And 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 what I learned about. About narrative, because I'm coming from, a, uh, you know, at that time, a background of playwriting where, where, you know, the spoken narrative, dialogue, you know, et cetera. And suddenly there's visual narrative and physical narrative and musical narrative and emotional narrative in terms of different tools to tell a story. Um, and, and, I, and I remember <clears throat> when we uh, started working at the Cirque, uh, facility in Montreal. I, I don't think anybody uh, who might be listening who was on the team would would deny this. The team was pretty demoralized and they'd been working on something for a year and a half and it just got dumped and we were suddenly on this accelerated timeline. We still had, I think it was a year and a half, but for a Cirque show, that is an accelerated sure. timeline because uh, they build it right in to the theater. And so, you know, to get to a place where they could start the build down in Las Vegas and yada, 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 and millions of dollars on, on the go. And But I remember that point, it was about six minutes into the process where, you know, everybody was doing their job for sure, but something just lit up and they, everybody got it. Everybody got what we were going after and the excitement of it and the, the doing the impossible and, uh, and, you know, whipping back and forth between the National Theatre School and Las Vegas. And uh, it was just so exciting and just learned so much, like so much. Uh, uh, I, I can't even, talking to you now, I still can't get my head around just the sheer depth and breadth of that learning experience, that accelerated learning experience. Uh, uh, quite amazing. And here we are, whatever, seven, eight years later, still running. I mean, it went down for a while with the pandemic, of course, of course but yeah. it right back up and still running. Mandalay and Bay, What Las was Vegas. your relationship to the final show when you finally saw it come to a... a, a I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. it you know, it, it, it really, you know, it, it's... Uh, you you're also like you're also working in a different almost climate of uh of of the arts in in there is it's unapolog when you're doing a Cirque du Soleil show it is unapologetically entertainment absolutely like it, that's what it is if it's not doing that forget it but but beyond that you you absolutely uh uh the, the more uh, meaning it has, the more emotional um, um, uh, connection it's making to the audience, et cetera, et cetera. You can go deeper, but the number one thing, it has to be entertaining, which is, is 
maybe we should be thinking about that more in theater, but it's not necessarily the, the way that, the, the, that we approach the creation of story in theater, that we don't start with, okay, this has got to be entertaining. Now, let's see what we can do. We start from a much more personal place and uh, as playwrights or storytellers or dramaturgical practice. Um, but <laughs> you know, Cirque du Soleil, you're starting with, okay, this first and foremost has to be entertaining. And then beyond that, you're still working in the same principles, all the same principles of storytelling, uh, of truth and authenticity and meaning and uh, um, connection and uh, all of it, you know. And, and I had to keep reminding myself and, and Jamie, and again, Jamie and Welby were great reminders of that when, when they could see my eyes starting to spin and it's like, this is I, I, so huge. They would just remind me and we're just telling a story. That's yeah. what we're doing. We're just telling a story. We happen to have big, big toolkit and uh, uh, a big budget and a different palette than you might use in theater, right? Uh, but you're just telling a story. That's what you're doing. And, and the way you're telling it, again, is different because it's not anchored in, in spoken narrative. It's not anchored in words. But you're still looking for, like, what is that? You know, I, I, the, what I kept coming back to with the Cirque show once I started to really get my head around it was what is the emotional journey of the audience, the emotional narrative, right? right. Uh, anchoring on that. But, yeah, incredible experience. Incredible experience. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you where you are with your writing these days. Before yeah. we started, you said that you're working on something new, For which sure. excites yeah. me to hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, working on a commission, Perry Theatre Exchange. Uh, okay. But I'm going to practice what I preach, what I referenced uh, you know, a, a time, some time ago in this interview. Uh, is I'm, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Like, I'm on second draft. But, yeah. uh, but you know, the, the way, and this is, again, one size fits one. The way I approach um, my own story creation is uh, to, to, to really... Uh, be talking about it in any sort of public way, I have to be absolutely anchored in w the story I'm telling and the form and the style because otherwise, if I started to tell you about it right now, what would happen? And you know it, you see it with storytellers at all, it would start to disintegrate and wobble and become like, and I, by the end of me telling you, I'd be going, ah, what am no, I No, no, I'm exactly the same way. When I'm, when I'm working on a project, I don't yeah. like to talk about it publicly at all. I, I, I always feel like it's a bird that's going to fly out of my mouth and take off and never for come sure, back. For sure, for sure. I wanted to ask you a question Andrew when, when you're referencing your own writing that yeah. the, when we talk about you know dramaturgs I, uh, what's your experience with an editor as as uh, uh, as someone who writes you know like for, when you're writing a novel for instance is it similar is it a similar relationship to kind of what I'm describing dramaturgically well I can only speak about for me the the book that I'm known for the, the work that I've done is called the gargoyle yeah and uh, I was lucky enough that it had an international release. So yeah. I had three editors that I was working with. There was a Canadian editor, uh, uh, an American editor, and a UK editor. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered in the process was that, like any writer or like any person, they all had different strengths. Right. So, right. for example, my uh, Canadian editor was exceptionally good at um, finding what was lacking yeah. and motivating me to find a way to build that in, to beautiful. build in the missing beautiful. thing. Beautiful, beautiful. So yeah. Yeah. She, would, she would say, yeah, okay, this story about the Vikings, like it's just, here's what I feel is missing. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how, how to fix it, yeah. but I can feel that it needs 10 pages of story right, uh, right, to yeah. build out yeah. this aspect of yeah. it. 
and challenged me in a way that really allowed me to build out the work. Yeah. The, and this is generalizations. They of all course, have many, course, many skills. Yeah, yeah. The American uh, editor was exceptionally good at line-by-line edits okay, um, yeah. and came back and really, really helped me to um, make the sentences better. Yeah. And also, uh, he was a fellow named Jerry Howard, and he had he's a legendary editor, and he had years and years of... Um, of experience. And as a young writer at that time, um, he, you know, he was, he was very efficiently able to ground me in my, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. hubris occasionally. I remember, uh, <laughs> at one point, I, I, I can't remember, I, I made some reference to William S. Burroughs and, uh, Burroughs novel Junkie. Yeah. And I was bound and determined that I was going to get this idea, this reference in. And I, I, I think I said to Jerry, well, you know, I really think that, you know, William S. Burroughs would have agreed with what I'm doing here and is perfectly right. And um, Jerry was able to say, yeah, I was Burroughs' editor and he would not have liked this. <laughs> and I said, okay, you win that argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the UK editor was um, exceptionally good at um, connecting parts. Yeah. So, in in my first draft that I handed to her, there were areas where I'm trying to get from one part of the story yeah, to the next yeah, part yeah. of the story, yeah. and the transition just wasn't working. Beautiful, yeah. And yeah. she was very, very good at suggesting, okay, this needs some more work, and here's some ideas. Yeah. So in the, in the case of uh, my experience, I was working with all three editors at the same time. Right. I would, I had a master document, and I would, talk on day one with one of them, talk on day two with the, the, the second one, talk yeah. on day three with the third one. I'd collect all of their notes. And there would be times that they would contradict each other yeah, in their, sure. yeah. their notes. There yeah. would be times where all three of them would say, this isn't working. And as the writer, my job was to uh, listen and consider their advice. Yeah. And didn't have to take it always. I would think that I took it about 80% of the time. Yeah, yeah. Because these were exceptionally talented, exceptionally smart people who had the same goal as me, which was to make the novel yeah. as good as possible. Yeah. And there were even times as a writer that I thought, well, I do believe that what, what I am doing has merit, but the other three people are in disagreement. Yeah. And if 75% of the intelligent people in this conversation don't like what I'm doing, maybe I shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I love it. Yeah. not that I was backing down from my own um, resolve, uh, but it challenged me to find a different and often better way to approach something that I thought I had correct. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So... I don't know if that answers your question. It completely answers yeah. it. First of all, thank you for sharing all that. Uh, um, in addition, uh, what you're describing that you, you got, the very different things you got from those three editors, all of those things can be a dramaturgical function. Absolutely. You know, like there it is. Um, but also, too, what, what I'm really appreciating about what you're saying and, and uh, 
um, sort of reflecting on as you were talking about it, is of course the playwright's journey in the face of those offers and in the face of those questions and in a workshop situation, because of course a novelist never gets into a workshop situation where they have five actors all feeding back generously, uh, feeding back offers and a dramaturg and a director and, and the playwright's journey at the center of that, trying to sort it all out, uh, try, you know, really hearing it all, but then at, at the end of the day having to go back and make those choices, often in the face of contradictory feedback. It's uh, really interesting. Well, I, for the Star Trek fans out there, mm. um, it's almost like being the commander of a, of a Starfleet vessel where you, Jean-Luc Picard, will gather his table. Yeah. He will listen to all of the advice, often contradictory, yeah. and he is the final one that has to decide. Uh, but I think that as the artist in this case... Yeah. We do ourselves and our work a disservice if we do not just shut up and listen to intelligent people, yeah. give their feedback, and then consider it deeply. And we don't have to take it, but invariably they're giving it because they want and, and the work a, to be it's better. that's interesting, Andrew, because that's a practice too. I mean, yeah. what, like one of the things, like just, it, it's a kind of a silly example, but a personal example as an actor, um, when uh, I was asked to do the narration for the PT uh, play that's... Um, that's uh, opening uh, on the 14th. Um, I had to, like, and I'm just in the narrator. It's not like I was getting, you know, a lot of acting notes, right? Uh, but even the ones I got, I had, uh, they, they, like, I had to kind of, like, no, this is part, like, open up. This is part of the job. Like, how quickly those muscles close down if you're not, and the point being practicing, practicing, practicing to stay open, practicing to, to hear and to listen. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, like w if you dig deeper psychologically, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we can sometimes tighten up uh, in the, in the face of feedback. One of it, one of them, just to be fair, can be bad feedback. You know, like, like uh, or or you know, just uh, maybe even good feedback with bad bedside manner. That that you know, uh, um, but but you know, like the, as as a playwright and and you know, returning to that, writing my own play. Um, getting feedback, I, I recognize at 61, I still have to practice again, practice being open and practice uh, hearing uh, and, and practice letting my guard down, my defenses down, my vulnerability down. And, you know, sometimes myself, I, I wonder if... Uh, if you know what I'm afraid of hearing is something that's going to make a lot of work for me, <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, just re refocusing on that. Yeah, this is to make the thing you're doing better. You know, and, and yeah. you're absolutely correct. It is a practice, and it's hard work to remain open and to remain vulnerable and to accept that maybe you haven't got it right. It's interesting when I when I do get bad feedback, that's very easy for me to to accept yeah, because yeah. because then I go okay a smart person just isn't understanding what right, I'm trying right, to do yeah, here and yeah. it's not working yeah. um, where it really cuts to the core is you're listening and as they're explaining you're going oh yeah I know you're exactly right <laughs> you I've got to shut down because this is so much work and it's so difficult <laughs> and it's coming for me but you're exactly right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah yeah um what I'm, I'm turning the tables on you here but I am curious like what 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 given your success as a novelist uh um uh, you know, what? Where did this? I'm, I'm, we're sitting in the Gargoyle Theater right now. It's beautiful, and yeah. uh, um, and you know, it, it of course, recenters my curiosity about 
why, Andrew? <laughs> like, why, why what, would I what? make this change? At yeah, this point like in my life? because it, it was you know like I can attest because I was here, I was witnessing it, the, the 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 monumental task of renovating this theater, and then the you know like in, during a pandemic, and and you know all your dreams getting the brakes get on, and and centering this place as a home for new Manitoba work. What's what is the engine like? What's the passion? What's driving it? Well, uh, it's a longer story, but I'll For bring sure. it uh, down yeah. to to one that's relatively easy to explain. Which is, um, I sat alone in a room writing by myself for years and right, years. Right, yeah. Over the last number of years, I have been working with. Uh, uh, a Japanese singer-songwriter we worked on a musical for mm. about three years. And what it reignited in me was the understanding that I really like being around creative, interesting sure. people yeah. making things yeah. Yeah. together. Yeah. This with my advancing age. Yeah. Uh, it's... I. At the start of this journey, I was coming up on 50. Mm. And... You know, I have an understanding that there is an eternity of nothingness before me, and there is an eternity of nothingness behind <clears> me. <throat> yeah. And if I'm very, very lucky, I have 30, 35, 40 more years of mm -hmm. good life. Yeah. Um, and it motivates me in the best possible way mm -hmm. to understand that I am responsible for enjoying that time and using it yeah. wisely. Yeah. Um, I want to have fun, I want to make things. And at the end of this life, we are all going to end up in exactly the same situation. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have children that I need to worry about an estate legacy for. Yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough in my life to have done well. Uh, and I had always thought that when I died, I would set up some sort of foundation that would specifically help second-time novelists. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and my thinking just shifted from from that to, well, why wait for my money to have fun yeah. after I'm gone right. when I can do it now? Nice, yeah. And the other part of it is that I just love theater more than almost anything. Beautiful. Um, yeah. There's, there as an art form, there is nothing that satisfies me to the same level yeah. as being in a room with actors putting on a story live. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, the last couple of years of the pandemic has been killing me to miss out on that experience yeah. because I because I I just genuinely love it so yeah. much. Well, I, I certainly I commend you for what yeah. you're doing, and it's so quickly. I can tell you because I'm working with all the uh, many, not all, but many of the the uh, the playwrights creating new work. Uh, like the other day, one of my students uh, in my playwriting class uh, uh, referenced the gargoyle as a as a possible sort of target for what he's working on, and like it's you know it, it is. It, it's happening. <laughs> it is. And, it, and, and this is actually what I'm hoping to be able to offer to the community is that when I was working on my musical and on the plays, 
you know, unless you're lucky enough to get drawn in the fringe lottery, it's so unbelievably hard yeah. to find anywhere to put on a new yeah. a new play. Yeah. And the, you know, sort of the impetus, the driving force was, I, I asked myself, well, what, what would I want yeah. as a somebody trying to get an early career play up? For sure. And yeah. worked backwards from that. Yeah, that's nice, lovely. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Like what what a what a um, it's almost like uh, now that this is here, I can't even imagine. Like like I can see so clearly the missing piece that wasn't there before. Right. Now that this is here, filling that because of course you know like we. I mean, Winnipeg's come. Winnipeg theaters come a long way, uh, but we're in a climate now where, where you know, the the established organizations and and the independent companies. There's a real investment in new work, but there's just a limited number of stages. Exactly. Like there's just yeah. a limited number of stages for for all the great work that is happening. You know, uh, uh, and, and to have this um, supporting and serving. Uh, uh, that is it's a uh, it's incredible andrew i really commend what you've done here yeah. oh thank you very much yeah yeah well and i commend the work that you're doing at the manitoba association of playwrights and uh, and all your work and thank you so very very much for coming in and speaking with us today. Uh, you're welcome thanks for having me well theater lovers i hope you enjoyed that interview with brian what an incredible wealth of experience he has been kind enough to share with us in conversation today. If you would like to become a member of the Manitoba Association of Playwrights, you can find them online at mbplays.ca. It is a great organization doing terrific work in helping to develop new plays, which is something that I personally love to see. Interviews for Live at the Gargoyle take place on the stage of the Gargoyle Theatre in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and are recorded, edited, and produced by the mighty Rebecca Drieger. If you like today's show, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. Giving us a positive review will help new listeners find us, which will in turn help us in our mission to support these incredible creators. We upload a new episode every two weeks, and our next interview is with Laura Ray, a writer and performer who has worked in stand-up, theatre, television, and radio, as well as co-founding the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Hers is a life most interesting, and you won't want to miss it. Until then, stay safe and keep creating.